Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Khashki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travellers. I'm Fraser Hines and I played Jamie McCrimmon in Doctor Who. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Or as Jamie might say, enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the foolish task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an only partially foolish three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast someone who was here at the very beginning, the very first guest panelist we ever had on this show, Danny Celadon. Hello, Danny. Hello, everyone. Now, if you're wondering why I'm saying all this stuff about foolishness, it's because originally this was supposed to go out as our April Fool's episode, but real-world concerns came in, and we got fooled, all right? And so we don't have an April Fool's episode, so you're hearing this long after the fact, so ignore all that business. So if you like what you're hearing, though I somehow doubt it now, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to BBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those, you're keeping them in a trans-dimensional blue shed in your back garden just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. <laughs> and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. And we also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. Now, you may be wondering why I called this a foolish task, and it's not just because this was a planned release for April Fool's Day, because why the hell not? Appropriately enough for the holiday, or whatever the hell it is, we're doing a new installment of Technically Target, with a novelization that is neither a Target novelization nor a novelization of a televised story. Did I say novelization? Boy, that's getting harder to say. Today we present to you DR Who and the Daleks by Alan Smithy. <laughs> My favorite author. Yes, the well-known writer Alan Smithy. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Daleks, adapted by Alan Smithy from the movie that premiered on 625-65 from a script by Milton Sabotsky based on the televised story by Terry Nation, published by Authors Books in April 2019. As of this recording in April of 2022, this title is currently in print and available as an e-book, 112 pages. First of all, don't let the name Alan Smithy fool you. 
That is indeed the traditional pseudonym used by film directors who want to distance themselves from a work they are not proud of, but in this case it's being used simply as a clever nom de plume for the professional writer behind it, and maybe even for legal purposes. Ian McLaughlin, who has written several novels based in the Doctor Who universe, is the person behind this one. Though if you go to his official website where this and the other three Alan Smithy books are listed, actually there's more than just four, he says the names on these books are Alan Smithy, David Agnew, and Robin Bland, so that must be who wrote them, mustn't it? As it goes, I designed the covers for these. Yeah, so that's fairly cheeky of him because he did more than design the covers for them. He actually wrote under all of those pseudonyms, and we recognize those other two pseudonyms as being the BBC in-house pseudonym David Agnew and Robin Bland, the one that Terence Dix specifically asked for for Brain of Morbius. Very cheeky, but understandable, given that these books, which you can order right now, from Obverse Books' website at obversebooks.co.uk. That's Obverse, by the way, O-B-V-E-R-S-E. These books are not officially licensed, and the profits all go to charity. The book was originally published along with other books published by Obverse Books to raise funds for the author Tommy Dabavand, who had been suffering from inoperable throat cancer and who died in May of 2019 at the age of 52. The copy we're reading was donated to us by our patron, James Sumnall, back in October, and we're just now able to do it for you, so thank you, James. I'm sorry it's been so long, but we finally got round to it. I've since gone back to the Obverse Books site, and I picked up ebooks of the other three releases. Yes, you heard that right. There are four of these Doctor Who books by Alan Smithy, with another three under the name David Agnew. This is a novelization of the 1965 Doctor Who and the Daleks movie with Peter Cushing playing Doctor Who. And yes, that is his name. And the second movie, Daleks Invasion or 2150 AD, has also been novelized. But there are also novels of Doctor Who and the Icemen from Mars, The Tenth Planet Invades the Moon Base, Doctor Who and the Yeti Invasion of London, Doctor Who and the Auton Attack, and Doctor Who and the Curse of the Demons. I know for sure we will do the second book eventually, but it'll be up to our listeners whether they want us to do the others. I plan on reading them all just for the lulls. <laughs> Producer Milton Sabotsky wrote the screenplay for the movie, which cleaves mostly faithfully to the original televised Dalek story, except for two notable differences. One is that while the televised story was seven episodes long, the movie clocks in at just one hour and 22 minutes. Yeah. The other is that the main character is indeed named Doctor Who, and he's not an alien. He is instead an eccentric inventor with an odd name who has invented a ship called TARDIS, that's capital T with all the other letters lowercase, who has two granddaughters, Susan and Barbara, the latter of which is dating Ian Chesterton. <laughs> oh, and Susan's 12 in this version, though oh, she acts much older than 12, most of the time anyway. Not always, unfortunately. McLaughlin's book cleaves very closely to the movie version, but it also drops in references to the expanded Doctor Who universe, not to mention several lovely tributes to David Whitaker's original novelization of the TV story, which Danny was part of our discussion of way back when we started this whole project. And it itself was a loose adaptation of what we actually got on screen, at least initially, so there's a lot of looseness going on. Uh-oh. There is no back cover, nope. so we have no dramatic <laughs> reading to give you this time, which is actually kind of a blessing, to be honest. <laughs> so, Dalton, what was your first impression when I shot this thing at you? Seeing as how I didn't read the first book because I wasn't on that episode, but I have gone back and watched <laughs> the first story... I kind of knew what was going to happen, but as you already mentioned, some of the differences about the Doctor actually being named Doctor Who and Barbara being his granddaughter, not just Susan being his granddaughter, I expected it to kind of veer more than it did, but it stayed pretty close from what I remembered of watching the, the first story. So yeah, I was kind of expecting something different, but I wasn't too disappointed. Okay. <laughs> And Danny, what was your first impression? You know, upon reading this, 
a lot of questions came up for me. I do remember what this is based on. However, I feel like this is really like a stripped down version of that story. It's kind of hard to put into words. Something's missing, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Something's definitely missing. It's William Hartnell and company, probably. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, there's so much missing, and it just brings up more questions, you know, as as you get along into the story. So it's, I don't know, it kind of threw me for a loop. Well, I think part of your problem might be that you're familiar with the original story, and you're also familiar with the Peter Cushing movie that this is based on. Yes. So those two parallel narratives are going on, and as Dalton pointed out, this has got most of it. But it hasn't got all of it, obviously. And that's kind of a good thing. So where do we start with this? Don't I defer to you? <laughs> well, uh, like, like I already said, the fact that the Doctor is being referred to as Doctor Who threw me off for the whole book. <laughs> really? Every, every time I read it, I was like, that is not right. Yeah. But that's because I've been reading these books with you for almost five years. So, like, <laughs> I'm so used to the Doctor being referred to as the Doctor and the TARDIS being referred to as the TARDIS, not just TARDIS. Mm-hmm. So those disconnects kept messing with me the whole way through. Susan was a little different than the Susan that I remembered, but she was close enough thinking way back of the stories that that she was in that I read. She still kind of annoyed me the way I remember her annoying me. (laughs) But she she is younger than she was in those. So I get that. She's kind of being like the annoying little sister to Barbara. Oh, yes. So, so, so much so. The four main characters are the biggest changes, because otherwise it's almost exactly the same story. But you're right. It, in fact, when Riff Tracks did a version of the Peter Cushing movie, that was part of their commentary. That Bill Corbett, from the very beginning, was like, oh, but where's the theme? Where's the long scarf? And it's basically <laughs> comparing it to the TV version. It's like, this isn't the TV version. Oh, wow. This is very much not the TV version. Wait, wait, which one of the doctors? Peter Cushing, the guy who played Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars? The grandest Tarkin. And the Mafia. But, but, but wait, which doctor was he? I, I know every single one of them so well. Their numbers, their eras, the actors who played them, their quirks. Did I mention that I knew the numbers? You did. I, I made this reference to you, Tony, earlier when I was reading this, but it, it almost feels like the, the great value Walmart in-store brand version of Doctor <laughs> Who. It's just something very <laughs> off about it. I can't quite put my finger on it, but yeah. <laughs> it, it's a bit like getting one of those Chinese knockoff Robocop dolls and it's uh, Robert <laughs> Cop or whatever they're called. <laughs> It has that feel to it, and I have to wonder whether kids in the 1960s going to see this theater were pissed off about it, or whether they even cared, because they were seeing the Daleks on the big screen in color, something that they could never do at home, at least not for another seven years anyway. So I have to wonder whether or not they really cared. And for that matter, here's the weird thing. The TV show by this point had just about established that the Doctor and Susan were alien, but they never really pinned it down perfectly. And it was never established that the Doctor had stolen the TARDIS by that point. There were sometimes even references in the Hartnell stories that he had invented it. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. so it's going way far from the canon we have now, but it's not traveling too far from the canon that they had back in 1965. And there wouldn't have been any way for anyone to to experience that first story again, right? Like, there was no syndication of that. It wasn't released on, you know, video didn't exist. So there was, like, no no way for people to really experience it. So this could be some people's, like, first in to, like, early Doctor Who, right? Well, that's the bizarre thing. Danny has read the original Doctor Who and the Daleks book by David Whitaker. And if memory serves, I think that that novel was released the same year as this movie was. And, nope, I'm wrong. It's good to know that I can be wrong sometimes. <laughs> that uh, that book actually was released on November 12th, 1964. So, unless they could find a printing of that book, there was no real way to compare the two. 
And even the Whitaker novelization doesn't necessarily establish things as too different than this is. So that might be a lot of it right there. But uh, I think the reason why Dalton, you were constantly reacting the way you were is because in those early novelizations, they do so often use Doctor Who. And we always say that it's an error when they do it. Yeah, well, and, and too, having watched all of the new series, like the Doctor is always just referred to as the Doctor. So it's just weird to me. But yeah, having to look at this as kind of its own separate take on that, then... I can't be too mad about it because it is kind of its own riff on who the doctor and, and who doctor who is. Exactly. So I think we could start there with the differing characterizations because both of you are familiar enough with the original fab four that you can pretty much see how they differ from these guys. What do we think of the Peter Cushing doctor who in this book? as a character he feels um very much like mad scientist gentleman almost <laughs> the author makes a, a point to kind of describe who these characters are he does a very good job to describe them at the very beginning of the story but then he kind of i don't really get that feeling towards the end there, there's this relationship between the the two characters ian and barbara that kind of just falls off the map. So it's interesting that he started off very strong to let you know who the characters are, but then it just kind of turned into nothing. Hmm. Okay. How about you, Dalton? The Doctor to me felt not as self-assured as the, the Hartnell Doctor could seem. You know, he, he always kind of had a grasp on things. And this one feels a little more like he's kind of being thrown into this world of discovery and not to say that he's he's not constantly thinking and trying to figure things out but whereas the Hartner doctor felt like a doctor that had already experienced some other adventures on other planets and different times this doctor i mean we're told that he created this machine and this from all that we know is kind of their first adventure in it so yeah he does kind of feel like he's just figuring things out and he is incredibly intelligent so he's able to but yeah he does feel a little bit different than the Hartnell doctor he still has that little bit of uh, a mischievous nature to him mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, i mean the the fact that he lies to get them to stay on the planet and go exploring definitely reeks of the other doctor so or mm -hmm. the, the hartnell doctor i should say not the other doctor <laughs> right and the <laughs> fact that susan's in on the lie this time she wasn't in the original yeah but yeah it's kind of like ooh, the grandfather and the granddaughter are gonna pull a fast one on the the other two because they're stupid by comparison yeah he definitely does feel different in that regard mm -hmm. and you're right this is their first adventure in fact, about the only thing we know about Doctor Who, apart from the fact that he even is said in the text to have an odd name, is that he's old. He's referred to as old lad, old buffer, old fellow, old chap. <laughs> old yeller. Yes, might as well. Because, God, it just keeps going on and on with his age. And it's like, well, yeah, this is an old doctor. Not as old as the Hartnell Doctor, but then, you know, who is? So that's where the Doctor differs. He's definitely a softer character than the Hartnell Doctor, even though he ends up doing much the same things and in much the same order, come to think of it. What about Susan? The little monster that she is. I was going to say, her relationship with Ian is so just wrong. Like, she just hates him <laughs> for no reason right off the bat. And... Yeah, it just seems so off. It's just like, why? Why are you being like this? Like, what has he done to make you hate him as much as it seems like you do? <laughs> why do we think they may have done the character that way? Oh, I'm, I'm wondering if it has to do with... There's a lot of references in this book to, like, Tom and Jerry and Quatermass and Professor X. And I'm wondering if they're just trying to capture, like every age range little brother big brother anyone can enjoy this movie mm. i think that might be a lot of it it's also telling that some of the earliest doctor who comic strips had the doctor the the hartnell doctor traveling not with ian barbara susan at all but with his grandchildren john and jillian 
And so I'm wondering if that's a bit of identification Mm. that the screenwriter's trying to do to say, okay, kids in the audience, you would be Susan because she's smart and she gets one over on the stupid people and she's the doctor's granddaughter. So she's immediately the coolest kid in the room, even though she's far from it. She's the one that everyone would want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. She'd be the audience identification character, whereas Ian would probably be the audience identification character for the adults in the audience who have no idea what the hell is going on. (laughs) Because Ian does not. (laughs) Yeah, we need to talk about Ian, don't we? (laughs) Yes. (sighs) What did you think? (laughs) So annoying. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> the way the way that he's characterized, the way that he is basically used. Okay, one, the idea of the romance with Barbara feels wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Again, because I, it's because I'm identifying this Ian and Barbara with the Ian and Barbara that I know so much better. So that mm-hmm. already feels weird, and we've already talked about how I feel about them possibly being together. Yep, you're not a fan of the shipping. Not a fan of the shipping. I kind of get it, but it, I'm still like, no, no. But this immediately starts off being like, nope, they're dating for real. It's happening, and then it spends the whole book talking about how Ian is doing things to come off a certain way towards Barbara to kind of puff out his chest and be brave for Barbara and doting on Barbara. And it just, it's, it's so overwhelmingly to me, like it's unnecessary. Like you can say that two people are dating and establish that, that they care for each other, without it having to be so over-the-top like that. Mm-hmm. I agree. Danny, what did you think? I don't really care for the character. He just... He, there's a lot of scenes with him just falling over and just being this general clown. I, I, I didn't care for him. Yeah, and that's the novelization cleaving close to the movie. Because all the bits where Ian shows some spark of understanding and actually is brave instead of just trying to act brave and all of those things that's the writer actually trying to rehabilitate that character because otherwise he is a buffoon he is the comic relief for the first movie yes there's the one scene with him you know he's introducing himself to the family and you know, there's there's a handshake gone wrong and chocolates get smashed. And it's like, oh, wow. Yep. <laughs> Soft centers. Oh, never mind. Uh, plenty more where that came from. <laughs> nice of you to drop in. Yeah, you're right. He's falling everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What Barbara who? Yes, that's her name. <laughs> what Barbara who could possibly see in a man like this is, well, it's beyond him. So it's, of course, beyond us. Believe it or not, though, Dalton, he's better on the page than he is on screen. Oh, jeez. And that's not me, by the way, before we get angry letters, that is not me saying anything against the actor Roy Castle, God bless his soul, uh, because he did a marvelous comedic performance, but it was a comedic performance, and it was always meant to be. So, yeah, that's the author trying to rehabilitate that character. Wow. In fact, the character that comes off the worst, I think, is Barbara. Because she doesn't have all that much to do in the original Dalek story, but she has even less to do in this. She's basically just Ian's, well, I'd call her side piece, except she isn't that. She's his girlfriend. Let's not use vulgar 2022 terms for it. But she's essentially just the love interest. And she's not even the love interest for one of the Thals as she is in the original story. So that's gone. What did you all think of her? Yeah, she's forgettable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so used to Barbara being the thinking person, you know, being being the companion that, again, like the doctor is always trying to figure things out and trying to do what she can to get them out of the situations they're in. Whereas this Barbara just feels like wallpaper. Yeah, I mean, we do get a few points where the writer's trying to rehabilitate her as well by making her much stronger than she appears to be when she goes with the Thals and Ian on the climbing expedition, but that's about it, really. Mm -hmm. But even then, it's like that is meant to be in response to like Ian Mm -hmm. trying to prove himself. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's it's less about Barbara and more about Ian. Well, that almost makes a bit of sense given that most of the book is told from Ian's point of view. I mean, unlike the Whitaker novelization where it's where it is Ian's point of view because he's the first person narrator for it. But at least in this case, yeah, you could kind of make an argument for it, but <laughs> And how how old are they supposed to be? Uh, late 20s, I always okay. thought. Really? Yeah. Well, believe it or not, that's how old Ian and Barbara were supposed to be in the uh, series. But that's not the case for the actors on screen, because they were both in their early to mid-30s at the time. Whereas the other versions of Barbara and Ian felt like they could be in their late 20s, this version of Barbara and Ian feel like they're teenagers to me. Really? They feel like they're maybe like 18, 19. Oh. Yes, that's what I got too. Really? Yeah, like they yeah. they feel like maybe early college age, but I didn't feel like the same kind of maturity that I got from the other version of Barbara and Ian. Like they, they feel very green. They feel very like cutesy. Well, I think a lot of that makes sense because unlike the TV versions of themselves, they don't seem to have careers. Uh, they, they're not teachers in the same way that they are on screen. Mm. I'm looking it up right now, and Roy Castle, who played Ian, was 32 when he did this role. Wow. Yeah. So if we're going by that, if we're aging the character by the actor, then he was 32. And Jenny Linden, who played Barbara, was, oh, almost exactly the same age. She was only a few years younger, but she was also in her 30s. So yeah, interesting that you both have that reaction. I think it's because I have the movie so ingrained in my brain that I can't think of them as younger than, say, late 20s, even though they're obviously, you know, 1965, people in their late 20s look like middle-aged people do now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just because of the styles and the hair and all that. And they do. I think the only thing that would maybe give any indication that he's a little older is in the beginning when it says he had a decent, if dull job at a good office and he polished up pretty well. (laughs) But even that, I mean, he could have finished school and instead of going to university, he could have just started working. Yeah. He still could be young. Yeah. Relatively young. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, let's talk about the Daleks then, because we already know that our main characters are changed out of all recognition what about the daleks how do they compare to the pepper pots that we know and hate <laughs> Ooh, that's a that's a, a weird one for me because I, I i try to you know pay very close attention to to how they are describing the daleks themselves now they did a very good job of visually describing what the daleks look like but then that i don't know if they actually got into you know What's actually inside the armor? They did say that they were in protective armoring, but did they say that they were human inside? Did they say they're they're some sort of mutants? I I wasn't clear on that point. They're mutated. They're not as fully mutated as they'll get later because, you know, continuity and all that. At this point, though, think of them as like dwarven, misshapen humanoid forms with claws and such. Yeah. Oh wow. But I think even then they didn't really go into detail about that. No. They did they did say that there was something organic inside of that casing, mm-hmm. but yeah, they don't really describe it. Yeah. In fact that's again cleaving directly to the original televised story where you only saw a little claw come out from beneath the cloak or whatever it is and then die. <laughs> the first casualty of Doctor Who's travels in time and space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You can assume that that there's some space in there, though, since Ian is shoved in one yes. and yeah. carted around. So. And that's always been kind of a sticking point for me, because we see that happen in this story. We see the first Doctor actually climb into a Dalek casing in the Space Museum. And then we never see it again until the new series, and then it's just bizarre because you have the Dalek mutant actually pulling a full grown human being into the casing where it shouldn't actually fit and it's like it's bigger on the inside or something you have to wonder 
Maybe that yeah, maybe they have done some uh, quantum <laughs> <laughs> jiggery with it. So I hope so. The one time I was in a Dalek, I barely fit in it, so I can't see <laughs> how anyone could actually fit in it when it's only supposed to be mutant inside it. But I noticed something about them in this book. They are much more bloodthirsty and vicious. Yes. Ridiculously so. To the point of being gleeful. Like, towards the end of chapter 6, the two Daleks swept in, eager to see the death that had been caused. There wasn't enough smoke, and the sensors didn't detect the exhilarating stench of burning flesh. It's like, Jesus! (laughs) Wow! They've been in those cases for far too long. But you have to wonder where they've been smelling that sort of thing and doing that sort of killing. Maybe that's just what they do for fun on Saturday nights. They pick the weakest Dalek and make them run around and then exterminate them. Yeah. Ugh, Lordy. To me, the Daleks didn't seem to be as bumbling as I remember some of the other early Dalek stories being. Yeah. I, I remember us in past episodes talking about how the Daleks seem kind of comedic the way that they're dealt with and the way that they're I don't know they're they're kind of a point of humor mm-hmm. unintentionally maybe but yeah but these don't seem quite like that they they do feel a little more menacing even if they you know they have limited capabilities I think a lot of that might explain why Ian has made such a clownish character it's meant to be a family film, obviously, but it is definitely geared towards kids. And that's why the Daleks are bright and colorful, but they're also just a little bit more menacing. And then you've got Ian providing comic relief. So the Daleks themselves don't really provide much in the way of comic relief at all. Not that they did in the original story. No. But bearing in mind that the movie on which this book was based came out right around the same time as The Chase did, and that story really did play them for laughs. Yeah. Yeah, it's all kind of bound together, I think. Danny, you mentioned something to me about the description of the Thals and their Egyptian makeup. Yeah, so I went down just a little bit of a, of a rabbit hole, just because I, I was interested in how the author described what the Thals look like, that, you know, that they had Egyptian-like eye makeup and as a gold tunic and gold pants and leather boots. And, you know, just out of curiosity, I wanted to see what the character looked like in, um, you know, both on in the movie and, and there was the, the episode as well, right? Right. The actor who played it, just just out of out of curiosity, found that the actor who played it was the same actor who plays the character in Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, really? Yes. Up the long ladder. Oh, seriously? Yes. Now, we're brewing pochin, but we need to find a way to heat it without this bloody ship firing bloody lightning bolts at us. You can obtain spiritus liquors from the food dispensers. Uh Uh-uh. Oh, no, no. It's not that synthahol pillage that O'Brien offered me, is it? No. If you wish, it can be real alcohol. Good. With all the deleterious effects intact. Mm, As it should be. (laughs) Dalton, I don't know if you've done a Google search, but if if you do a Google search for Thals and 1965, it'll probably come right up. Wow, it looks like Mimi from Dr. Drew. Or from, from the Drew Carey show, I mean, not Dr. Drew. Yes! <laughs> it really, yeah, that style of makeup is just so over the top. Obviously, they don't have that style of makeup in the original story. But they do on screen because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, it's the big screen. It's in color! So that's one of the big selling points. And two, and I think this is why it is emphasized so much in the book, we have to explain why it is that each and every Thal has a compact mirror. (laughs) Yes. What? (laughs) Because why would they? Doctor Who's main attack on the Dalek City is to use all the mirrors that the Thals have 
to screw with the sensors. Yes. Yes. But that means that all the Thals have compact mirrors, and of course they do, because they all have this stupid-ass makeup. Yeah, they need to keep checking and making sure. Yes, they are all starving. We're told that they're starving, and that they've lost several people along the way, but goddamn, did they ever leave a fabulous-looking corpse every single time. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Oh, it's one of those plot points that you're just like, okay, I kind of see now where it would make sense that they would all have mirrors, but really, seriously? (laughs) Oh, God. There are also some bits in here where the writer has amplified or changed a couple plot points, which I think is pretty clever, such as when Susan is writing the note to Aladon, and saying, you know, come into the city, we'll, the Daleks will give you food. She makes certain letters in the note fractionally larger so that they spell out the words, it is a trap. Oh. Which doesn't happen in the movie. Which is pretty clever, but it raises a very obvious question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you know what I'm going to say. Of course. In our universe, the TARDIS translates everything, but how do the Daleks and the Thals understand the Who family at all, or vice versa, much less their writing, because the TARDIS is not the TARDIS. TARDIS. How are they understanding? Yes, TARDIS. (laughs) How are they understanding each other? (sighs) Otherwise, it's very clever. Yeah. Yeah, too bad it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work at all. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, it says in Aladdin's case, it meant that he noticed that the letters were not at all even, but he ignored them, dismissing them as a product of Susan's young age. It's like, oh, don't Uh. you be dissing Susan like that. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. She's just young and her handwriting's poor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there's one other big thing that the writer actually makes some allowance for. Because they couldn't do the negative effect on screen for some reason, because the way they did the Dalek extermination effect on TV was just by turning the aperture up on the camera so that it went into a negative. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't achieve that on film and in color. So they decided... Also, that instead of giving them fire throwers, which had been thought of, and they thought that it would be way too scary for kids, they'd give the Daleks fire extinguishers. Oh, wow. So they spray steam. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone who gets killed by steam. But in the book, it's explained to us that they do have energy weapons, but the steam that we're seeing is from the Dalek rays superheating the air. Interesting. Mm. Which just about works. Just about works, and in fact, it makes it a little scarier because that means that their death rays are invisible, but the effect of the death rays aren't. They're hot enough that they can steam up the air and presumably do some real major damage to a human body as well, or a thaw body, whatever. (sighs) What did we not like? Well, I already talked about not liking the Ian and Barbara situation and the doting and all of that so right (laughs) there's so much running around in this story i i kind of got lost on some of the details now at the very start the daleks want one of the girls to accompany them outside to get drugs to (laughs) to to counter the, the the radiation but it's like, wait, how do they know that it's there? Did it, am I missing something here? Did I miss some sort of plot point? And there, there you know, there's a, a lot of back and forth like that at some point where it's like, wait, what am I missing here? So I don't know. Oh yeah. Can you guys provide any insight on that? I, I'm. I wonder if it's there, because to be honest, I probably missed the fact that it wasn't there because my brain fills in that gap. Yeah. But I don't think it's in the original story either. I don't know exactly how the Daleks are aware of those drugs being there back in TARDIS. I've got the PDF in front of me, so I, I want to know this because that seems like a big old plot hole. How would the Daleks know about it? Right. I, I think I went back twice. I was like, I, I don't see how they knew about this. So where did this come from? Yeah. 
Well, it's definitely a means to an end, isn't it? Because yeah. if they don't get those drugs, then they die. But Because you're right, the Daleks do know about it. They know about those drugs. It just seems like, like a very like generic, oh, they're in the middle of the jungle somewhere. It's like, but how would you know that? You know? Oh, here it is. It's page 42, where the Dalek is giving the history of the Daleks and the Thals, because obviously they were never Khaleds in this timeline. They were always Daleks. Most of the Thals perished in the war. Those who survived and remain on this planet are horrible mutations, monsters. They have a drug which cures the sickness of radiation. If we get the drug, we will give some to you. Without it, you will die. And then... Doctor Who says none of us is well enough to go, one of you must, and that's it. It, it, It's so very specific. Like, we know exactly where this drug is, but we need you to come along with us because reasons. Yeah, well, the Daleks can't actually leave the city because reasons <laughs> in fact they're not even they're, that... they're on powered rails yeah exactly yeah they're they're dodgem cars yeah <laughs> right and, and that kind of reminded me of how are the daleks where didn't they do that were they yes they kind of interfered with their with their uh power systems like that and it mm-hmm. it stopped yep. them in their tracks almost literally exactly yeah which is why they can't go outside the city to get it but you have to wonder how do they know that the thals have that drug to begin with they don't seem to know about the store in tardis but they know the thals have that drug and it's weird how several steps away from the original source material you can see the holes the gaping holes in the original source material a lot worse so the fact that he's spackled over as many as he has is kind of impressive but not all of them. In fact, one spackling I think I do like is the whole thing of Aladon being a pacifist, wanting to be a pacifist, but actually deep inside himself, he really doesn't want to be, and he does want to fight the Daleks, rather than this gigantic con that Doctor Who and his companions foist on the Thals to get them to fight for them so that they can get the fluid link back. Yeah, it reads a lot better. Oh, that's what that's all about. I it, I thought that was kind of weird when I read it. I just couldn't quite put my finger on it. That's exactly what's happening. At least here in this version, and not in the David Whitaker version, Aladon just needs somebody to persuade him. Because he's already there. He just needs somebody outside to persuade him, and sure enough, that's what they do. But that's not in the movie. I mean, the the persuasion part is, obviously, but in the movie, they are stubbornly pacifist. In the original televised story, they're stubbornly pacifist. Here, it's like, uh, I don't want to have to do this because we've never done this before, but if you trick me, and I know that you're tricking me, I suppose I could justify it. It's like, okay, whatever gets you through the night, buddy. It's still, the the whole ruse, though, with the doctor getting them to fight, left a bad taste in my mouth because the only reason that Aladon reacted the way he did is because they were going to take his girlfriend to the Daleks. Yes. <laughs> so yes. we're still relying on that, like, I'm here to protect my woman that we're getting from Ian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's something that the writer can't repair because the writer is trying very hard to cleave as closely as possible to a script that was written in 1965. Yeah, it's a product of its time, but it's, I don't know. Reading reading that, I'm like, so you only care about your girl being taken than saving your whole group of people. It takes that to make you be like, no, I have to protect her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. <laughs> Yeah, so that would fall into the things we like, things we dislike category. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think I jumped over the things we like category, to be honest. Was there anything else that we liked about the book as well as what we disliked? The description when Susan is going back to TARDIS to get the medicine. I remember that feeling pretty, pretty good atmosphere. And I remember the TV episodes. Susan being so, like weak and like stumbling around and i don't know it didn't seem like there was anything to be afraid of really Mm -hmm. (laughs) she seemed like she was too afraid 
this version still gives us like a bit of suspense and really, you know, it talks about kind of like a storm brewing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And imagine a 12 year old girl going through that. Exactly. Yeah. That obviously is going to be a little bit of adult fear going on there as well. But I do have to say that when she's first tapped on the shoulder by Aladon, and her reaction to it in the book is actually somewhat better than her reaction on screen, where she's just so terrified. Whereas on the page, her reaction is, as soon as she realizes it's Ian, she says, we've got to get out of here now. Mm-hmm. And she's like, get the fuck out, dude. We need to go. Yeah. And that's slightly better. Whenever the group is going into the back of the city through the swamp, the idea that Ian just has to stop to freshen up <laughs> is ridiculous to me. Like, what? Like, you, you just need to, like, put your face in the swamp water for a second. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that he sees something in the water, gets freaked out, and is like, we need to leave. But then their fifth member is like, well, actually, let me stay here by myself and fill up our water jugs. (laughs) I I, I don't understand that at all. (laughs) His dipping his face in the water is played for laughs on screen, but then, of course, the death happens anyway. Yeah. So you don't know what he's reacting to, and you figure, oh, it's just Ian being Ian, and then you find out, oh, no. (laughs) Ian had every reason to take his face out of the water as quickly as he did. But yeah, it's one of those things that the televised story actually does better than the movie version does, believe it or not. And then the the other thing, again, with that group is when they get to the hole that they all have to jump over. Barbara, Ian, and Antidus jump over and get across. And then Ganatus is basically just like, no, I can't do it. Leave me behind. And, you know, he finally jumps and gets pulled in. And you think that, like, okay, he's going to die, whatever. He sacrificed himself. So the fact that he gets to live Mm -hmm. (laughs) frustrated me. It should. (laughs) Because he doesn't in the televised version. (laughs) He actually does sacrifice himself and he dies in the televised version. And you can kind of tell that... That's probably the filmmaker saying, you know, that's going to be way too dark for a family going out to the pictures on a Saturday night together. A little grim for the kids, but but it just, it seems to downplay that triumph of everyone else continuing and just the scene before with them, like talking him into continuing forward and then the tunnel collapsing. So then it's like, okay, well now you have to keep going it seems to kind of erase any of that kind of character progress with him. I, di- I didn't hate him. I didn't want him to die. But if you're going to build up to something like that, make it pay off. Yeah. And it really sticks out here, too. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that that whole subplot is still there. But in the televised version, that whole thing takes up most of episode six. So <laughs> I think also they were trying to cut it down as much as they could and... They managed it, but they had to have a happy ending so that they're not going into the Dalek city all bummed out and shit. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have to be all bright and happy when you go into the Dalek city. To kill all uh, the Daleks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. To commit genocide. Yeah. Oh, Lordy. I like that they all cooperating with, with each other to try to get out of a really desperate situation. I actually laughed out loud at the one scene of them pushing a Dalek into an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Instantly, it reminded me of an episode of Archer where where they dump computers down an elevator shaft. <laughs> <laughs> and Pam turns to her co-worker and says, how's the elevator supposed to work if there's a jillion pounds of computers on it? <laughs> and the answer is it, 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 it won't. won't. <laughs> and that's kind of the point with the Daleks being on top of it. Yeah, I don't have anything to say about that. (laughs) Just a fun little scene there. It is. And I'm sure the kiddies back in 1965 loved seeing all this stuff on the big screen, especially if they didn't remember seeing the original story, because that's possible. 
but they would have seen them recently, and the next year they'd see them for 12 fucking weeks in a row. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Dalek Master Plan. Oh, my God. More like Dalek Masturbation. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's essentially what it was, too. Holy cow. Anything else we want to say about this? I also wanted to bring up that on page 82, they're talking about how Doctor Who is recalling when he was in World War II. The Nazis had wanted to expand, to subjugate, to rule. They had treated anyone who wasn't a Nazi as less than they were. He had read about the trials at Nuremberg with a sick feeling. So this really does give you a... um, It's Doctor Who as if he were a human it's during that time period it's it's just very odd because our the doctor that we know and love is is um very different just kind of observing humanity and doesn't have personal experiences where he's gone through our wars so it's an interesting take to make the the character human yeah and that ian should also have a flashback to the blitz in the same book Mm-hmm. That this is something that the writer is doing really well, bringing out what Terry Nation always claimed he believed about the Daleks, which is that they were the Nazis. Even though, to be honest, I think he came up with that in the mid-70s when he did Genesis of the Daleks and didn't think of them that way before then. But this definitely hammers that theme home. And it also does do a great deal, as you say, Danny, to differentiate this Doctor Who character from the Doctor that we already know. Mm -hmm. Because this is somebody who has not traveled through history. He's lived part of that history. And it's a very different experience. So I have to wonder what the other books are going to be like, especially when he starts having adventures that the other doctors had in our universe such as meeting the demons and all that Mm -hmm. anything else before we go to goodreads i will just say that i thought it was interesting that basically this book and the last book ended talking about a lucky number (laughs) oh dear yes Except this one, it felt a little more earned, didn't it? Yes, this this one didn't feel <laughs> inappropriate. This one also has a little moment after the fact, instead of it just yes. cutting off. Exactly. So, uh, this is how you do it. You give me mm. at least two more pages of something. Oh, and let me tell you, the ending is a lot better on the page, because on screen, it's kind of embarrassing, to be honest. The way this movie ends is, it's a comedic note. It's just silly. Whereas, the way it's written, yeah, this is much better. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's do. Let's do it. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 4.25, which astonishes me. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, James Sumnall, who donated this book to us to begin with, gives it 3.5 stars and says, Considering this could easily just be a script-to-page affair, the novelization carries a lot of the Saturday tea-time coziness. The author certainly cares about the material, and it's easy to construct the mental pictures in one's mind's eye through some nicely paced narrative. There's a little more characterization, which is nice to see. Ian's worry at making a good first impression, his time in national service, and also Barbara's harrowing experience of being trapped in a cupboard as a child and likening it to her current incarnation is effective. That's right. She was trapped in a cupboard, so that's why she's terrified of being in the uh, 
Dalek lift. The Daleks are well described, and although they do come across as very low-key villains, they are in keeping with the movie plot. Like Dave Davies mentions, I did appreciate the rationalization of the blaster effect. A couple of little nods to Doctor Who canon made me smile. The mention of spotting a police box on Barnes Common goes back to Whitaker's novelization of the TV serial this film is based on, very meta. And the reference to Professor Nightshade brought back some great memories of reading Mark Gatiss's New Adventures books. I do have very fond memories of this film from watching it one Saturday morning on the BBC and then spending the remainder of the day building Daleks from Lego. It certainly cemented my love for Doctor Who. Aww. Dave Davies gives it three stars and says this book was quite surprising, not least the fact that it existed. I was also astonished to find that I enjoyed it, often for the same reasons I dislike the movie. I saw the movie back in the 60s at the height of Dalek Mania and didn't see anything wrong with it, but the next time I saw it on television in the 70s, things had changed. Firstly, the TV series had moved on and the Doctor had a backstory which is completely at odds with this version. Secondly, television screens in the 70s were small. This movie looks quite good on larger modern TV screens where some of the spectacle of the big screens maintained, but on the smaller 70s screens it lost all of that spectacle. Consequently, though the production values were generally quite high, some of the changes from the TV version are quite jarring. The Dalek gun effect, for example, was a simple yet effective one on TV of making the whole screen negative. This couldn't be achieved on film, so after flamethrowers had been rejected by sensors, a pathetic fire extinguisher effect was used. On the big screen, this would look quite effective. On a small screen, it's a damp squib. The way the book deals with the Dalek gun is interesting. For the first two uses, the effect is ignored, and readers can make up their own minds how it might have looked. The third time when the Daleks ambush the Thals, the movie effect is explained. The gun is an energy weapon as on TV, but here the air is superheated, which produces steam, which then becomes visible as water vapor. This explanation doesn't really help when watching the movie, but it's a valiant effort and faithful to the source. The whole book seems to be faithful to the movie and yet improves on it. Roy Cask was cast to make Ian comedic. Unfortunately, this comedy dates badly, but in the book is balanced by Ian's thoughts, with his insecurities bringing a sense of pathos alongside the slapstick. There is depth, too, in Ian's musings about the Nazis, and his recollection of seeing film of the liberation of the concentration camps with all the horror those films exposed. My mother, only a few years younger than Castle, remembered seeing those films when she was about 11, so Ian certainly would have watched them. And finally, a user called Book Collector gives it five stars and says, I loved it. He, whoever that is, takes the opportunity of the novel to delve into other characters' backgrounds in surprising ways. It's well-written, easy to read, and great fun. There are typos, which are annoying, boy howdy, but it's a small charity publication and I've seen just as many typos in big publishers' works recently, thoroughly enjoying this series of books. So, Danny, out of five stars... How many would you give this book? I give this three stars out of five. Lots of action, lots of adventure. This is a, a, a great entry point to the characters, who they are. You get to introduce everyone. Kind of almost like a like a reboot, but you get a full-fledged adventure after that. Not the best, but I agree with, with one of the reviewers saying that they took their time to explain who everyone was. Okay. And Dalton? I would also give this one a three, even though there were bits of it that felt wrong or off to me. I don't think that that's any fault of the author. I think that working with the source material that they had, they did the best that they could. And as opposed to wanting an Ian Martyr, you know, version where they just really expand and go crazy with it. I think they did a good job giving us basically what you would see on screen. It's not sparkling and beautiful all over, but it gets the job done. So that's why I would give it a three. It's kind of just right in the middle. Okay. And as for me, I'd agree with James Sumnall on this one. I'd give it a 3.5, mainly because it's just that bit better than the standard novelizations. It does include some nods and winks to Doctor Who continuity. So if you're in the know, you get those little jokes. It also improves on what is, frankly, a lackluster script. Because the original script, even though it was seven episodes long, was pretty engaging. The movie 
goes by at a fast clip, but as Danny pointed out, it's missing something. It's definitely missing something, whereas this tries to put some stuff back in, and it just about manages it, but not quite. And as you said, Dalton, that's not a failure on the writer's part. That's all to do with the script. That being said, it's going to be very interesting to see what the later books look like, especially as the writer is doing his own material rather than adapting the movie material, such as it is. So, 3.5. All right, well, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be looking at Terrence Dick's novelization of The Nightmare of Eden. And boy, howdy, is it a nightmare. In the meantime... If you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in with your spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.